Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Today is the day. Indeed, today is the day the Lord has made. We rejoice. We are glad in it. Uh, We are going to return to the Lord this morning with a heart of gratitude for his mercy and his grace. We are going to acknowledge the inbreaking of the kingdom of God through the incarnation of his son. Uh, And we're also going to, we're just going to readily admit that, wow, we still pray every single day, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because we experience the very real um, brokenness and pain and disappointment um, and sense of lack in so many ways as we uh, inhabit this time between Christ's life and death and resurrection and ascension into heaven and his coming again, the second advent, which we eagerly anticipate and await and um, feel an urgency to communicate in in the culture in these days, we feel an urgency as Christians to invite people to look up and pay attention and uh, be watchful and mindful of who Jesus is and what he has done and that the salvation offered in him is available right now, um, that they would invite this Christ who in this season we see as a child in a manger, but who is the Lord. Um, we invite people to receive him in and enthrone him in human hearts in the same way that um, he is enthroned in in heaven. And so we turn in the Gospel of Luke to the 17th chapter. It's the 17th day of Advent. It's the 17th day of December. We are in the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Um, there are uh, what may seem, when you're reading the 17th chapter, a series of disconnected thoughts and ideas. And this is when we have to take a step back and we have to remember, look, the writer is writing something that... Um, is is a cohesive work. And so Luke is Luke is working out here in chapter 17 the same thing that he said about doing when he said, "Look, I'm going to put together an orderly account. I'm going to explain it. It's going to make sense. Um it's going to be historically accurate. There's going to be a lot packed in there. You're going to get to know Jesus by the end of this." And so what do we what do we learn about Jesus and ourselves and the character of God in the 17th chapter of the gospel according to Luke? And then you have to ask the big question, which is, so what? So what? So what? So he leads off with a teaching about uh, temptation, and then there is this conversation about the increase of faith. That is actually, I think, the theme of this chapter. And so as you are reading the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, I want you to ask yourself, what, what do I observe here about who has faith, where faith is demonstrated, what Jesus says about faith? Um, and and what it what it says about me that I am either looking for the second coming of Christ, I'm looking for the kingdom of God um, it, it, to be manifest here uh, on the earth today, that I am actively engaged as a person of faith in bringing those kingdom realities about, or I'm not, because that's really the two groups of people who appear in Luke chapter 17. Those those are in fact just frankly the two groups of people 
who live in the world. All right, next up, uh, Mark Caleb Smith is going to be back from Cedarville University. He and I are going to have a conversation at the intersection of what I would describe as the political news and our faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want to... um, I want to tell you two quick things before he comes on. Um, there, there's a, a, a very recent Wall Street Journal NBC poll that says 91% of self-identified Republicans say they approve of the job President Trump is doing. Only 6% of Democrats say they approve. That is the widest margin ever. That's an 85-point gap, 20 points wider um, between Republicans and Democrats here in the United States of America than we have seen um, uh uh, well, that, that was true at the same point when Barack Obama was president. Uh, now, we did have the same partisan gap at this point um, in Jimmy Carter's presidency, uh, but but um, mm, it was only half as wide. Like, right? This is it. This is the <laughs> this is the most divided we've ever been. We're going to talk about division, not in a math way, but in a faith and politics way. Um, that's up next with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Mark Caleb Smith is with us again this morning. He is a political science professor at Cedarville University. Uh, he describes himself as a constitutional gadfly and a hopeless uh, political wonk. So welcome, 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 welcome. Uh, it's always good good to be with you, Carmen. How are you doing today? I'm well. Proud UGA alumnus. Is, um, is that the University of Georgia? Are you a bulldog? I am a bulldog, yes, proudly. Well, there you go. Okay, so um, that will be a seasonal discussion we will have <clears throat> again maybe in the fall. That season has now passed for my team, so I'm not going to bring it up. Um, so, uh, Mark, I-, I don't even quite – like impeachment. We've got so many people across the country who are simply just fatigued and exhausted by the subject, and yet this is a really critical week. It's it's historic um, and it feels completely irresponsible to not talk about it. And yet I'm wondering what can be said at this point that that hasn't yet been said somewhere. Um, and frankly, people are rolling their eyes. Yeah, I think people are so dug in on this issue, either in support of the president or in opposition to the president, that it just doesn't feel like uh, information really matters a whole lot to us right now. And it doesn't mean people are even wrong in that opinion, frankly, because I think you could argue that we haven't seen, you know, the proverbial smoking gun emerge from this whole thing. You know, the definitive fact, the one thing that we can all agree on and say this is an abuse of power. And so I think a lot of people just sort of file this away with the rest of the Trump presidency. It fits into how they view President Trump in general, and it doesn't really challenge them. And so why spend extra time thinking about it? And on top of that, we have the Christmas season coming. Uh, in some ways, it's coming. Seems perfectly appropriate. Coming. I don't know about you. It is fully upon us here. There's no coming. It's here. It's here. Uh, it, it isn't here until my grades are done. My grades are done tomorrow. <laughs> so then it will be here for me in full. I feel like for your students, we should just say, you know, um, be gracious, be merciful. Let your, <laughs> right? Let joy abound this season. Think of all the joy you have the ability to deliver as a professor at the end of a semester. Like, that's a powerful and, position to be in. There's always that tension between uh, joy and justice. And so sometimes can, uh, sometimes one wins, sometimes the other. So, Mark, um, do you feel – do you ever feel in this professorial role yeah. um, 
I mean, I don't know about you, but other than like getting into graduate school, I mean, ultimately the grades I got as an undergrad, I'm not, I'm not sure anybody when I've like applied for a job has really like looked at my, at the grades I got. So grades matter because I'm, it is to me evidence of maybe how hard I applied myself and how hard I worked and um, how much of the material I was able to sort of comprehend and apprehend and then communicate back to the professor that I understood but in terms of, of the world's judgment anymore, I just don't know. I don't know how carefully are employers scrutinizing the grades of students. I don't think they're scrutinizing as much as they used to because we see so much grade inflation. Mm. Uh, so many people have high grades that grades aren't a good distinguisher anymore between really solid, strong students and students maybe who are more average. And on top of that, like you said, sometimes a relatively average student, whatever that means, might have incredible strengths that just don't show up clearly on an exam. And so I think people have a, a probably a better attitude toward grades than they did maybe even when I was in college. They still matter, uh, but not nearly as much as they did. Hmm. Your social media, however, if you're listening and you're a student, your social media matters a lot. It's the first place that yep. um, that when I'm, when I'm uh, looking for an intern, the first place I uh, look is um, is their social media. I'm like, hmm, do I want to be linked to this person, you know, in a significant way? Okay, back to politics. Um, this week is a big week. Uh, it looks as if um, Schumer, who is a Democrat and like the leading Democrat in, in the Senate, right. has issued a proposal where he thinks that the, the, the Democrats in the Senate are actually going to control the process. Now, didn't the Democrats control the process in the House where they have the majority? Like, why should they get to control the process in the Senate? This is what the average American is asking. Well, what what Senator Schumer is trying to do is force the Republicans to standards that they adopted back in in the late 90s when President Clinton was impeached. And by doing that, he's hoping that they'll be consistent. Um, Now, I think in some ways he would view that as a win for the Democrats if it looks like it did in 1999. Um, but I, I don't think he's going to get that. I think the Republicans are going to play a little bit more hardball. If you've uh, been paying attention, your listeners have. Mitch McConnell has already said uh, he's the Senate Majority Leader for the Republicans. He's already said that he's working pretty closely with the White House on this process and what it's going to look like. So I, I don't think Senator Schumer is going to be real happy with the outcome. Let me just say, though, as a matter of opinion, I, I really wish Senator McConnell would be more distanced on this issue. I mean, the senators are supposed to be impartial jurors at some level. It's a little bit appalling for me as a constitutionalist, someone who really values the separation of powers and the conflict between the president and Congress, um, to see Senator McConnell just basically say, well, you know, we're going to work with the White House on this. That sort of defeats the whole purpose of impeachment itself. Okay, so I have a quick um, – it's like a one-question pop quiz uh, yes. That's that somebody apparently um, yesterday on MSNBC, there was apparently this wide open debate about a word that nobody on air at the time knew the meaning of. And I feel like I feel very confident, you know, the meaning <clears throat> and can um, illuminate us. It's majoritarian. Yes. So, yeah, majoritarian, you basically have two different ways of looking at how you run a legislative body or a political world. It's either majoritarian or anti-majoritarian. Majoritarian just simply means you go with a majority vote and it's just pure majority. Uh, if it's super majoritarian, then it might be a super majority, like two thirds of a vote or something like that happens. If it's anti-majoritarian, then it really the majority doesn't matter much at all. You have standards in place that dictate what's happening. So uh, it's a certain philosophy you bring to how you view government and how you view political actions. 
All right, there you go. Thank you so much for uh, the answer to our one question pop quiz this morning here at the end of the semester. Uh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith and I are going to be right back. We're going to talk about um, the, the, the division of America right now and where, where the center is and how the center holds. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'll be home for Christmas. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, Mark, you and I uh, have looked at an article this week that actually reaches back um, and and lifts up a study that was done in the year following the 2016 election in an effort to sort of understand the American electorate. And um, the the attending graphic is pretty uh, is pretty dramatic. Um, there is a constellation of red dots in an upper right hand quadrant, quadrant, and a constellation of blue dots in a lower left hand quadrant. And uh, and the reality is that the American electorate is divided along two different axes. Um, one being economic issues, which include you know welfare, um, entitlement programs, trade a sense of uh, income or wealth inequality. And then on this vertical axis, moral identity issues, um, everything from abortion and transgender rights to people's views of, um, of race, gender, immigration, uh, and, and religion. And so when, we, when you, as a, you know, as a researcher and a professor and a, a, a student of all things um, political here in the United States and as a person of faith, when you look at this, what do you see? Well, in some ways, it's it's not surprising at all. Um, if you look over the last few decades, we've been seeing a, a gradual polarization in the electorate that we haven't seen for quite some time. The two parties are just moving farther and farther away from each other, um, and the middle ground is sort of dissolving between those two parties. Uh, if you if you look back at history, you know, in the nineteen fifties, sixties, and seventies, for example there was a pretty decent overlap between uh, liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. There was a fair number of people who sort of had a foot in each party to some extent. Well, that overlaps disappeared, and the common ground between them has disappeared. And I think you see it represented fairly well in that graph. But I think one other thing to point out, I think the graph also gives us a pretty good indicator that both parties probably are led by people who are more extreme than the members of the parties themselves. Um, it feels like the leadership in both parties are pulling people toward the extremes, uh, probably more so than the Democratic Party right now than, than in the Republican Party, uh, but they're represented by extreme opinions. And those are really the choices that are put in front of people right now. They, they don't have uh, easy selections of more moderate voices or more in-between voices to look up to. So there's a couple of words that um, I hear tossed around a lot and they are actually in this uh, in this article um, as well. One of those words is populism, and another one of those words is really two words, um, but it, it could probably be characterized in one word, and that would be the elite or the cultural elite. Or uh, yeah. So, can you describe to us um, populism and what you think is meant by that when um, journalists say it? And and who is meant by that? And then who is meant when journalists refer to the cultural elite um, or, you know, or the coastal elite? Who who are they talking about and what are the characteristics of those individuals? 
so populism is, has a long history in the United States. Um, if you if you know your political history, you can even trace it back to figures like William Jennings Bryan and other people who sort of used a similar kind of rhetoric and an approach to government that we even see, I think, with President Trump to some extent. But populism is basically this idea that government needs to be harnessed in order to benefit the people as, as a whole. And it needs to be used to empower the people. And usually a leader steps forward and says, you know, I am the manifestation of the people. I am the representative of the people. I'm going to use the government now to benefit you and to take care of you. In doing that, though, they always treat it as almost an us versus them mentality. You know, we're going to use the government to take care of you. However, what's the government been doing up until now? It's been being used to, to benefit the elite. And so it's always sort of a, the people versus the elite argument when you look at a populist point of view. And I think President Trump is a, is a good representative of this. Um, his whole idea of running against the establishment or running to drain the swamp really is a very populist understanding of reality. But I, I think a, a big thing that kind of trips people up, though, is they expect populism to kind of work like conservatism or liberalism or progressivism. You know, these ideologies that have very firm points of view and very strong commitments to certain policies. Populism doesn't really work that way. It doesn't have a very strong political identity outside of this, this difference between uh, the people themselves and the elites, however you want to define them. When you think of elites, I mean, that has many different definitions. You can look at it. Today, when we talk about elites, we're usually talking about economic elites or educational elites. Uh, you could use that as the top 1% or the top 10%. Um, but certainly, it's being used right now in the political world as a tool of division between these two groups of people. And when we <clears> – I mean, the reason I bring those two words up, um, and, and populism, I think, is a word that we – we need to not only understand, we need to be able to define how it's being used in a conversation when it comes up. Because it's been my experience that a person either uses it as um, as almost self-descriptive and, and in a way that is positive, or it's more often used, at least in my conversations, by another person um, in a negative way. Um, it's a dysphemism, you know, the to, to yeah. imagine that you're a part of the populace. I mean, like that. And, and so which says something about the person with whom I am having a discourse. And I think that when, we, when we're thinking about equipping Christians to enter into the conversations of the day in ways that honor Jesus, not only knowing what these words mean maybe when they're used in journalism, but knowing what they mean in a conversation with another person is really critical. Um, so thank you for indulging me in, um, in sort of you know, the exercise of defining the terms, because I really think that this this needs to become a growing part of the conversations that we have every day with people on the street or people, um, you know, with whom we're engaging, maybe not on the street, but people with whom we're engaging, you know, over coffee and, and in conversation at work. When a word is used or thrown about, pausing and simply asking a person what they mean when they use that term, I find tremendously helpful. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think, and this is going to be sort of the professor in me coming out, I understand that. But when you talk to people about these kinds of words, whether it's populism, or even conservatism, or liberalism, or progressivism, they frequently don't have a strong idea of what those things mean. I mean, they're labels, and they use the label, and they may even use the label properly, if you want to use that term, but they don't have a strong definition of what it really means for them. One thing that we've been noticing recently is people are using that term 
not as a way to identify themselves necessarily and what they stand for, but now they use it as a way to, to identify what they stand against. It's sort mm. of, uh, I don't know what I'm for, but I certainly know what I'm against. And this label helps me define what I'm against, which is a really interesting development. Mm. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, thank, thank you so very much. Have a very Merry Christmas. We look forward to talking with you in the new year. Same to you. Merry Christmas and uh, Happy New Year. What a blessing. Thanks so much. Hey, guys, we'll be right back. Up next, you've got a place at the table with me and Kelly Minter. Kelly Minter is the author of many Bible studies that are used by thousands of women across the country. But just like you, uh, Kelly can't be summed up in one word. She's also a gardener. She loves to travel. She plays the guitar. She leads worship. Um, And she gathers people around the table at her home. And that's the theme of her new cookbook, A Place at the Table, as well as uh, a new Bible study called Finding God Faithful. All that is up next on Mornings with Carmen. If you want to enter to win a copy of the book, you just need to text the word book to 877-933-2484. That's the way we are giving them away today. We'll be right back. Do you remember those crazy fads from the late 60s and 70s? My dad always hated my bushy sideburns and long hair, my purple bell bottoms and knee-high boots. But back in the day, I was hot stuff. (laughs) Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Just like we confounded our parents with goofy clothes and weird styles, our teens today have their own trends and fashions. And just as you don't wear the same things you did back then, your teen won't always dress this way either. So if your daughter is caught in some crazy fad, don't flip out. It doesn't mean much of anything about who she is as a person, except that she's a normal teenager. Don't make a passing fad your battlefield of wills. Relax. This, too, shall pass. Parenting Teens isn't for the faint of heart. Learn about Mark's upcoming events and check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Today uh, is Kelly Mentor. Many of you are already familiar with Kelly. We are talking today about her new book, which is also a cookbook, A Place at the Table, uh, Fresh Recipes for Meaningful Gatherings. Kelly, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be with you guys. Let me let me begin by, because you wrote this with, in partnership with another person, let me let you introduce Regina Um, to our listeners as well, because I know that this is a collaborative work. Yes. So I have been cooking for a long time, and I've always included recipes in the Bible studies that I was writing, just because food and eating and cooking and community has been a big part of my life. And uh, so my, my publisher came to me and asked if I'd be you know, interested in writing a true proper cookbook. And, uh, I, I was interested, but I knew I was going to need like a bonafide chef to do that with me. And so I have a dear friend named Regina. She's a retired chef and she has been cooking for the last 50, 60 years and, um, has studied in Italy in different parts. She's also a uh, Brazilian, grew up in Brazil and she had a, a bakery and a uh, chocolate company here in Nashville that was really thriving. And, uh, so I went to her, we were friends from church and some work that we do in the Amazon jungle together with justice and mercy international. And I said, Regina, 
I cannot do this cookbook by myself and you are going to need to do it with me. And so that started this really wonderful, um, collaborative, uh, project for us. And, and I, you know, I included a lot of my recipes, but I really leaned heavily on some of her go-to recipes and some of the ones that are kind of famous around here. And especially with her desserts and her baking, that's where she's really strong. And so it was, it was awesome. It was really fun to work with her. Okay, so I want to actually dig in literally to the cookbook. Um, it's really fun. It has a whole chapter on tomatoes, which makes me happy. Um, <laughs> yes, it has a should. whole chapter on soup that also makes me happy. I happen to be quite a soup person myself. So oh. let's just start with this. Um, why are you like? I just feel like for women, this is this is really an easy entry point into conversation. We all cook all the time. And so um, talk with us about the rhythm of this, how it connects us to, you know, people throughout history, but also how it connects us to scripture, because this is really a beautiful integration of something that we do every day in life, but also with the Word of God. Yeah. So I, you know, w- w- one thing that I really wanted to do was to, to provide stories for people and, and really engage them a little bit more in my real life and some of Regina's real life, um, in a way that I can't do in, in Bible studies. And I, so I wrote nine stories, uh, throughout the cookbook and also some, um, gardening tips and tricks and some cooking tips and tricks, but those stories each, uh, spill into a set of recipes that are meaningful to me and that also go with the theme of the story. So it's, it's a book, there's stories, it's cooking, but also, um, yeah, there's spiritual encouragement there and um, biblical references to the love that Jesus has for us and the way that he would gather people around a table or attend um, meals. And that was so we look at the New Testament, we see so many times that Jesus did something significant around bread or a meal or even around water. And so um, I just feel like the table is a very disarming way and cooking is a disarming way to gather with people. I mean, I got to have um, friends over and neighbors over last night, some who I know well, some who I don't know that well. And we gathered around a meal and it's, and everybody was here, you know, three and a half, four hours. And we just got to talk and we got to talk without cell phones and without, you know, television. And I, I love that the way that food opens up community for us and also a way to minister to people who are very you know, levels of either difficulty um, or maybe even joyous times that we can celebrate around food. So the first uh, extended story that you tell is about the dinner table. Why don't you share that with our listeners? Yeah. So growing up, I, I really grew up around the dinner table, my, and I know that this isn't possible for everybody. So this is, this is not like the, the golden standard or something to make us feel guilty because everybody's in a different stage of life. But I grew up um, with my mom making dinner most nights, and um, they didn't weren't necessarily elaborate, but we sat down every night to get to to dinner, my siblings and my my, my mom and dad, and it was a place I, I call it like uh, really a mooring. It was an anchor, it was a harbor for us, and no matter what the day threw at us, we knew that we could come home um, to that to that. Um, consistent space where there was going to be conversation, where we were going to be heard, where we were going to listen. And 
where we were going to converse and where we were going to be nourished. And, and I'm, I'm really, really grateful. We, we did not scatter, um, as a, as a family and as a, as a result, and, and I, I'm not married, I don't have children of my own, but as a result, um, it is very rare that I eat dinner, uh, by myself, whether it's, you know, my brother and his wife and kids over, or it's friends over, or it's neighbors over, or one other person, um, that dinner time is very important to me and it's rejuvenating for me. And so that's why I wanted to write a cookbook to help people have accessible recipes that would empower them to cook. Cause I know everybody's busy and I know it's hard. And instead of the evening meal being a drain, I wanted it to be something that was exciting for people and, and something that they felt like they could do. Okay. And then I would love for you. And again, I'm talking with Kelly mentor. We're talking about her newest book, which is also a cookbook, A Place at the Table, Fresh Recipes for Meaningful Gatherings. If you've been looking for, um, you know, frankly, a Christmas gift that um, that you could use really as an invitation, this is a really wonderful gift that you could give to a sister, a friend, a neighbor. Um, if you're not quite ready maybe to invite them to a Bible study, but you're ready to start tilling the soil of that conversation. Um, because Kelly's mm. gifting, we all know, is in, you know, is in writing these Bible studies. And there's, there's one uh, new one available I have in my hand uh, in the Living Room series, Finding God Faithful, a study of the life of Joseph, also available right now. Um, but if I'm not quite ready to invite my neighbor or my sister into a Bible study, I could give her the gift of this cookbook and inv- mm. begin to till the soil of these conversations, because that's really what you're doing. Um, I, I love the portion um, on gardening. And so when we come back, will you talk with us about gardening? Um, and then I want to know how it's possible that there's a whole chapter on the tomato. <laughs> Absolutely. We can do that. <laughs> All right. Kelly Minter and I will be right back. Returning to my conversation with Kelly Minter, we are talking about uh, her new book slash cookbook, A Place at the Table, Fresh Recipes for Meaningful Gatherings, um, written with her friend Regina Pinto. Excellent, um, excellent recipes throughout the book, a whole chapter on soup, uh, for those of you listening, you know I'm quite the fan of of soup. I find it to be, um, <clears throat> it's a, it's my go to. Soup is it's probably my, my go to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but let's go to let's go back to the chapter on gardening. Just draw people into this because this really is a delightful invitation um, into the kind of the heart of of who we are as people placed in a garden. Yeah, I, you know, it's so interesting is you go all the way back to Genesis and you see that, that one of the blessings was that not just food, but the, one of the blessings was that we would be able to cultivate that and that the seed, every seed bearing plant would have, uh, or fruit bearing plant, I should say, would have seed of its own kind so that it can continue to, uh, proliferate. And so we were really, uh, up until actually really fairly recently in, in, in our history, uh, part of how we would sustain ourselves would be, you know, on a farm or in a garden and, and much of the world still lives this way. It's how they, it's how they, um, sustain themselves. And, and so I think there's something innately therapeutic, um, uh, about being in the garden, not just that, but also 
there's, there's so many spiritual moments that happen because especially if you read scripture, there's so much, uh, references to, um, to agriculture in scripture and especially Jesus. I mean, he, you know, he talks about, um, the grapes or the, the vine or, or grain or seed going into the ground and dying so that it can, can, um, have life. And so anyway, so much that I could say about that, but I, I just started about seven or eight years ago. I got five raised beds in my backyard and, um, got some really good soil and, I've been doing a summer garden. Sometimes if I can get my act together, a spring one as well and fall lettuce and kale and uh, spinach and that type of, type of thing. And it, it is just such a fun um, hobby for me. And it's very relaxing. It's very therapeutic to be able to go out there and weed or, you know, plant something. Uh, I did flowers this last, these last two years and I love having fresh cut flowers in my house. Um, it's also like a great little gift if, you know, to bring to a dinner party, just that you cut these flowers and put them in a little, you know, ball, you know, uh, jar or something like that and bring it over. It's just, I don't know. It's been a really fun, it's been a really fun thing for me. I, I wish I could do it, um, on a larger scale, but I, I just haven't figured out how to do that and write Bible studies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You call it a ball jar, which, um, lots of people would call it a Mason jar. So you might have just given away that you're, you're Northern. It's okay though. Oh, is it, you know what, that I did grow up right outside DC. So maybe that is so funny. You know, maybe it's because, um, I've got, yeah, that's funny. I don't think I've ever thought now, are they different? Are they different brands? No, it's just like the difference between a, uh, you know, a, a soda pop maybe and a Coke in the South. We that, just call everything Coke. Just say, and uh, uh, so gotcha. the Mason, the Mason jar is just the variety. And then ball is a particular brand. brand. Anyway, oh, it, I heard, gotcha. I, I caught it. I heard it. I love I like it. That. Okay. I like it. So, I like it. So, so Mason so I'm, jar for those in the South. Exactly. So I'm talking with Kelly Minter. Uh, we're talking about her new book, also cookbook, A Place at the Table, Fresh Recipes for Meaningful Gatherings. Um, I, I want you, um, I, I know that I'm rushing a little bit, and that's because I want you to be able to tell the big fish story from the Amazon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I so I get to go to the Amazon with Justice and Mercy International um, at least once a year, sometimes two or three times a year. And I there's a we work with jungle pastors there, which is a, a that's a whole story in and of itself. But there are there are thousands of jungle pastors, indigenous pastors and their wives that that work in these very forgotten regions. And uh, there's flooding in the Amazon every single year. The Amazon rises and falls, I think something like 15 meters a year. So it's an incredible amount of of uh, uh, surge that happens every year. And a lot of these villages live in areas that flood yearly. And you would say, well, why don't they just get up and move and go someplace else? But they, they can't. And it's just part of their reality. So I was talking to a pastor and his wife, um, Manuel and Michelle one day, and they were talking about how the food was very scarce at that time. They were in a flooded region. And, uh, I just, you know, I just didn't have a category for that. So I began to ask them more about, it. and they said, you know what? They said, Kelly, we've had, we've lived with this for so many years of our life and the, and God always provides. And they began to tell me this one story that had happened several years prior where their kids were little, little, four little kids. And they were really low on food. And it was a Sunday morning. They wake up and Michelle looks at her husband and just says, look, we are, we, we have nothing left. And of course we know the fishing is scarce during the flooding and our crops are wiped out, 
but we cannot go to church today and you need to go and look for food for us. And he was new in the ministry, was pastoring. And, you know, these are, they're small, um, small village churches, but he, he said, you know what? No, we are, we are going to basically seek the kingdom of God first. And we know that he's going to take care of us. I know he will. And so he puts all the family in this little canoe and they ride off to church. And then he uh, ministers, gives his message and, Afterwards, they get back in the canoe and they're hungry. Kids' stomachs are growling. I mean, they're, it's a very trying time. And they're on their way back and a fish over three feet jumps out of the Amazon River, jumps right out of the water and lands inside their canoe. And they were not fishing. They were just driving home. And and not only was it a fish, but I asked the pastor what kind of fish it was. And he said it was the arowana fish, which I don't know that what what that meant to him, if anything. But a few days later, I went to the Manaus fish market, which, which uh, sources fish for the whole region from the Amazon. And I could barely, I, I like could not find this fish. And I finally found it. And the reason I had ha- such a hard time finding it is because it's a delicacy. And it's one of the most expensive fish that you can get at the market. And I thought, you know, if the Lord's going to go to all the trouble to put a fish into someone's cano- canoe, he might as well make it a filet mignon, you know, when he does it. And it was just an amazing, it was an amazing story. It was a blessing to be reminded that those who really lean on the Lord in, in the, the hardest and most trying of times. Um, we see him faith. We find him faithful. We see him show up in incredible ways. I just love it. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, for those of you who would be interested in knowing it comes right in the middle, uh, of the book. Um, I was going to tell you what page, but on page 138 is the beginning of a big fish story from the Amazon, um, Kelly, the book is beautiful. Um, it's substantial. Um, and it is, um, it's, it's filling, it's filling mm. in a very appropriate way. So thank you for helping us to taste and see that the Lord is good, feast upon his word. And I, I love the emphasis throughout this book on, um, the sharing of the meal and the experience. This is not just about producing a meal. This is about, um, using a meal that then provides for the opportunity for gathering people together um, and sharing in what the Lord has provided. So thank you for that as well. It's about setting a beautiful table and inviting people in, and it's just lovely. So thank you for the invitation mm. you you offer us in a place at the table. Uh, Kelly Mentor, you can find her at kellymentor.com. You can also find a place at the table everywhere books are sold. And her new Bible study is Finding God Faithful, a study on the life of Joseph. It's an eight-week um, video-based Bible study, uh, and it's a brand new one by Kelly Mentor. So you're going to want to grab that as well. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. I so enjoy- enjoyed being part of it. Oh, I've enjoyed it as well, and um, I look forward to swapping recipes. Hey, that'd be awesome. And now that I know that you're so close, that's that's easily I, done. I know. I know. You can come pick in my garden anytime. Oh, do you have a garden out there? We do. We do. Oh, that's I know. Wonderful. I know. I'll, 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 we'll get together off air. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, thank uh, you, Carmen. I appreciate it so much. Absolutely. Blessings. We'll be right back. All right. Okay, if you would like to enter the drawing to win one of the three copies of A Place at the Table by Kelly Minter, 
You need to text the word book to 877-933-2484. Don't, don't add anything. Don't embellish your message. Just text the word book to 877-933-2484 because when you do that, you are going to get a text message in return that includes a link, and that is actually how you enter, uh, enter the drawing. So just text the word book to 877-933-2484 if you would like to enter the drawing for one of the three copies that we have in studio of A Place at the Table. I feel like I can promise in advance that Kelly Minter will be back because uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. And I never actually followed up on the why there is a whole chapter on tomatoes question. Um, let me just tell you, it's because tomatoes are pretty much good at any meal um, and pretty much at any part of any meal. And so the tomato is, um, you know, it's a fruit that is just particularly useful across the board. So that's kind of fun to know. And it's really, really versatile. So there you go. Maybe you could let me know what your favorite tomato recipe is. You know, you can always email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. I cook a lot. And so maybe you've got a favorite recipe to share. Let me just go ahead and, and say, if it includes um, Jello and it's not like just Jello, I don't want that recipe. Nothing like, I don't think that things should be like gelatinous that aren't Jello. Anyway, there you go. That's my two cents on that. Um, also, no organ meat recipes. I don't do those. Um, <clears throat> Paul. Well, one uh, one yeah. food item you don't eat. One food item not going to be you. You're not partaking of. Hmm. Um. Well, pickled herring. Uh, see, do. there you go. Okay. Now I am definitely I'm definitely in the camp that if it's if it's pickled, it should be a pickle. Anything else exactly. pickled? Mm, not doing that. And dill go. pickle. I don't do the other pickles too much. Oh, yes, dill. No sweet pickles. Oh okay. no, our bread and butter. There no, you go. No, no. This is a lot of disclosure this morning about our our personal like you know right. Yeah. Um, all right, friends, we've got a whole nother hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. I have going to have conversations with Justin Gibney uh, from the AND campaign. He and I are going to talk about when and when not to be offended. And then Colin Hansen, the editor of the Gospel Coalition, is going to share the top stories from 2019. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.